Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 to 5. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So Paul here describes the gospel that he preached and which the apostles preached, and he says that's in which you stand. We could say that the gospel is concerned with who is Christ. It answers that question. And the answer to this question is the ground of understanding salvation. Paul sums up the gospel as Christ dying for our sins, being raised on the third day, and then appearing to the twelve apostles. And notice that the identity of Christ is linked to his ongoing presence. First with the apostles, then with believers. So Paul explains to the Corinthians, he died for our sins, and he says with each phrase, according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised according to the scriptures. Apart from these events in the life of Christ, and of course the scriptures that he's talking about are the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, I think apart from these events, it would be hard to locate such things in the scriptures. But given the reality of the life of Christ, the scriptures, the Old Testament, became a means of understanding these events. They're interpreting it through the Bible, through the Old Testament, and these events then unveil the meaning of scripture. We find Christ in the scriptures. He's present for us in the Old Testament. We encounter him there. And this is the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. That is, the essential points of the gospel are the means of reading and understanding Scripture. But what we're truly understanding is Christ. And the analogy of faith, or the rule of faith, you know, the gospel, is a hermeneutic or interpretive lens which unveils the meaning of the Hebrew scriptures, among many other things. And this meaning is Christ. So we read in light of what God has wrought in Christ. The scriptures then provide the terms, the images. This morning we talked about Moses, and Moses coming out of Egypt. It's that imagery that we partly understand who Christ is. The context which made sense of it for the apostles in which with they explained it and preached it. In other words, the object when we read the Bible, the Old Testament or the New Testament, is not simply to understand the historical setting. That may be important. It's not simply to understand the intent of the author. That may be important. 
But the point is to understand Christ according to the scriptures, as Paul says. And in understanding him, that we have his presence. And so there is an inner working of the apostolic preaching, the rule of faith, the role of scripture. But as we talked last week, this rule of faith is at once a personal mindset. It's an ethical orientation. That is, maybe rule gives us the wrong feeling. Because it's something that's integrated into who we are. It's our life. And this rule is more than a proposition or a rule in an ordinary sense. But it's the means of seeing and measuring all things by Christ. By the peace and love of Christ in our life. And the rule is linked with unity and peace. It's linked with apprehending rightly. That's what Paul says. It's linked with making critical judgments. And here we're not simply talking propositional content, but Christ's presence. That is, he's present in our life in this definitive way. Which is to say this rule of faith, that where it is taken up, that Christ is taken up. Taken up into the self as part of who we are, part of our apprehension of things. We can talk about it as an alternative to the law. You know, what is the law? The law is a measure. It's a definitive measure. But as Paul describes in Galatians 3.25, the law is like a tutor that guides us, leads, you know, actually the tutor was one who leads to school. But faith is not an objective rule that's coercing us outwardly, but it's an inward perspective or critical faculty. And maybe we lose this point, you know, if we focus too much on doctrine, on creeds, on propositional language. The danger is that this will push out the personal, the ethical, or the sense in which faith is a living hypothesis. It's not a dead letter. So there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with doctrine or creeds or propositional content. But the problem is where these, or the literal, what we might call the fleshly, or the law, where these become primary, the letter displaces the spirit. In reality, we lose the real presence of Christ. That's what we're always talking about. Letters, propositions, doctrines, they're a necessity. But they're not the goal, they're not the end, but they're the means. And so just as, you know, we put together letters to make words and larger units of meaning, but the ultimate ground of meaning is Christ the Word, Christ the Logos, in which all things are apprehended, in which the end of meaning arises. And so Paul explains in Romans 12, 6, that the analogy of faith works in conjunction with preaching and teaching. I'm going to just reference these scriptures because I talked about them last week. But he wanted every prophecy and every teaching to be conformed to the likeness of faith or the analogy of faith, Romans 12, 6. You know, let the prophet prophesy according to faith, to the analogy of faith. He says in 1 Corinthians, appraise all things according to the mind of Christ. Putting on the mind of Christ means that the individual is enabled to make judgments, inform critiques. He says, 
so that we may know the things freely given to us by God in 1 Corinthians 2 so that we combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words and thus understand those things that are spiritually appraised. So this spiritual individual has the wisdom provided by God. And then he compares this to the natural man. Literally the word here is a a man of animal soul. Is incapable, he says, of discerning the things of the spirit. You know, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he shall lead you into all truth. I think Paul is applying this to the Corinthian church. It's not enough that the Corinthians have an apostle, Paul himself. It's not enough that they have elders and shepherds. And of course, some of these people, we don't know exactly who they are or how they're connected to the church. Paul talks to the, about them as super apostles. But they're abusing their position of power. There's an extreme authoritarianism. And so Paul is eager to balance this out. The Corinthians, on the other hand, they're eager to submit themselves to these various authorities. They're pitting, you know, one says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos. And so they're pitting one leader against another, maybe one elder or one teacher against another. And notice what Paul does not do. Paul doesn't, you know, grab up a scepter and put on a big robe and say, now you listen to me. He does not set himself up as final authority, nor does he allow Apollos such an authority. He doesn't say, well, look to Peter. But he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 7, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. And he's not talking simply about corporate or institutional growth. He's talking about the individual. This is very much attached to this idea of the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith, the rule of faith, the analogia fide, however we want to talk about it, I think that's the primary authority that Paul is concerned to establish. That each one would put on the mind of Christ. Now obviously Paul is exercising authority. You know, he's writing a letter. But his is not a coercive authoritarianism. In 2 Corinthians, he pleads, he persuades. You know, he even says about himself, he says, I'm exaggerating. He says, I'm acting like a fool. I'm bragging. And I shouldn't be doing this. Think of the time in Antioch when he challenges Peter. When Peter refuses to eat with the Gentiles. The the authority that he challenges Peter with. They're both apostles. How does one apostle challenge another apostle? Or how could Paul go to the council of apostles in Jerusalem? You know, he argues there that the gospel is for Gentiles, and Gentiles should not become Jews. I think he feels this confidence not simply because he's an apostle, they're all apostles, but because he's calling the apostles themselves to follow the standard or rule of faith, which governs them all. The apostles themselves must not veer from the apostolic tradition 
in which their authority rests. And so in dealing with those who are challenging the teaching, Paul says you're, you're using the, the wrong measurement. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. And as a result, they're without understanding. Paul says, I measure with the measure which God has given me. Oh, what measure is that? He says in Ephesians, the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There is God's measure. This is the measure rather than a measure that stirs up human antagonism. This is the means to the unity of the faith, he says. We all attain to the unity of faith in the measure of Christ. And then we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. The authority of Christ is an understanding, a rule, an analogy, the mind of Christ that we put on. This measure and authority is one that each Christian is to take up, that we all become then able to discern. And so Paul's main concern is not, oh, that the Christians obey him or the Corinthians obey him. His main concern is not even that they revere his letters. I think his main concern is that they put on the mind of Christ, that they become spiritually minded in their thinking. And so the Corinthians and all Christians are to judge by the measure of faith. And this measure breaks down the inherent hostility I think that's contained in the law, in human measure. The law, as Paul describes in Ephesians, creates a wall of hostility. But Christ, he himself is our peace, he says, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. He abolishes in his flesh the enmity of human measure, which is the law contained in ordinances. And so the turn from the rule of faith, which is Christ, to ordinances, to creeds, to doctrines, it produces division. I think that's just the way that human measure works. The church itself has become a violent place. You know, this happens in the time of Constantine. Christians participate in bloodshed against other Christians. And Paul had predicted as much to the Galatians. He says that when you turn to the law, you bite and devour one another because you're judging according to the flesh. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so the singular principle Paul invokes is love of neighbor for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a measure to be lived out, but its very nature is what disrupts what Paul sees as that desire undergirding the law. You know, he says in Galatians 5:26 that you become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. I think that's the inevitable result, the biting and devouring of one another of the human measure. 
But in contrast, the rule of faith, the measure of Christ, the means to peace and unity is the measure of Christ. Christ is the promotion of love and peace. He himself, as Paul says in Ephesians, is our peace as the measure by which we attain to the unity of the faith. So we have two measures, two rules. We have the human measure and the measure of Christ. The human measure we could call the law. We could call it the law of sin and death. It's inherently violent. It's inherently oppressive. And the measure of Christ is inherently peaceful. That's how we know we're using the right measure. It's in the life of Christ that we see the two measures, you know, pitted against one another. Why does Christ die? He dies according to the measure of man. He dies according to the measure of Roman law. He dies according to the measure of Jewish law. And of course, what he is demonstrating is what the martyrs of the church will take up, the countermeasure, the peace of Christ embodied in nonviolent love, in nonviolent resistance, is the counter to the human measure and is the goal and means of the rule of faith. I'm going to just conclude with this thought. It's a very simple thought. We have the rule of faith, the analogy of faith. It's an ethic. It's a peaceful understanding. And this is what the early church taught. That is, if you're going to live according to the analogy of faith, you're going to live according to peace. The Didache, which is written sometime in the first century, very early, it provides instructions for Christian life, and it says there's two ways to live. The two ways are the way of life and the way of death. And we believe this is just the instruction to new Christians or to people who are becoming Christians. And it's focused on the doctrine of love, and actually many of these early rules of faith We'll quote Matthew 5, 39. You know, that's the text that Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the left cheek, turn to them the other. If someone asks you to go a mile, go two miles. You love your enemy. You don't hate your enemy. And so this reference contains Jesus' command of nonviolent resistance, of radical subordination. And this is, the Didache says, the way of life. It sums up the point. In other words, the Didache provides a measurement for Christian living that is founded on Jesus' own teaching, but particularly on Jesus' ethical teaching. Justin Martyr, who lived 100 to 165, in his first apology, he also speaks of this rule of faith. He's writing to the emperor, Antonius Pius, and of course they're trying to get the emperors to stop persecuting the Christians. He describes Christian nonviolence as offering no threat to Rome. He says, we Christians serve a heavenly kingdom. For if we look for a human kingdom, we should also deny our Christ that we might not be slain. You're killing us because we believe in Christ. And we should strive to escape detection that we might obtain what we expect. He says, but since our thoughts are not fixed on the present, we are not concerned when men cut us off, since also death is a debt which must at all events be paid. And so he describes the kingdom established among Christians as bringing to pass, you know, the prophecy in 
Isaiah 2.3, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. He's saying, this is true now of us Christians. We learn war no more. He says, as a result, we who formerly used to murder one another do not only now refrain from making war upon our enemies, but also we may not lie nor deceive our examiners willingly dying confessing Christ. And he points to the case of the many who were once of your way of thinking, but have changed their violent and tyrannical disposition, being overcome by the witness of other Christians, by their forbearance, their patience. When defrauded or maltreated, they have endured. And so he says, these proofs, these are the proofs, these people, Christians whose lives are governed by a rule of enemy love, by a rule of nonviolence. The rule is not simply an objective rule, but the means to grow in love and peace. And then Tertullian, 160 to 220. He also is addressing the rulers of the Roman Empire. That's actually there in the address. He explains that Christians are persecuted unjustly because they love their enemies and are forbidden to retaliate. He says, if we are enjoined then to love our enemies, as I have remarked, whom have we to hate? If injured, we are forbidden to retaliate, lest we become as bad ourselves. Who can suffer injury at our hands? He asks, banded together as we are, ever so ready to sacrifice our lives, what single case of revenge for injury are you able to point to? They're both arguing then, we Christians make pretty good citizens. This nonviolent form of life in which Christians are charged to love their enemies, Tertullian explains, is the rule of truth which comes down from Christ through the apostles. What is the apostolic teaching? What is the apostolic preaching? What is the identity of Christ? It's to be found in this rule of faith. And so Christians have exchanged the law of retribution, the law of violence, for the law of truth and nonviolence. And Tertullian explains, as a result, Rome gains. Rome doesn't lose anything. One more. Actually, I'm going backward in time. This is Ignatius of Antioch. He died in about 108. We don't really know when he was born, but clearly he was born in the first century. And he's writing a letter to Polycarp. And Ignatius explains the law of nonviolence, replaces the weapons of war. Remember the passage in Ephesians? He says, let your baptism endure as your arms, your faith as your helmet, your love as your spear, your patience as a complete panoply. Human law calls for violent preparation through the weapons of war, but the law of peace taught by Christ, it exchanges the military equipment with the equipment of love and patience. So, the analogy of faith is an analogy of peace, and this analogy of faith and peace, this apostolic tradition, this apostolic authority, it is the rule of peace. It may be contained propositions, but it's not simply that. 
you know, this is partly what the creeds may be attempting. It may be partly doctrine, but it is not, it can't be identified with that. The rule of faith is an ethic, it's a characteristic way of thinking, and it's to govern the life of the mind and the body of the Christian. And I think beyond this, we can equate it with peace, and we can equate it with the presence of Christ in our life. So to identify Christ, that's what we're doing, you know, when we talk about the rule of faith. We're identifying, we're saying, who is Christ? And inclusive in this identity is his presence to us. That is to say who Christ is, is to say he is present in our lives. And the way he is present is in the peace that he brings to our life. In the ethic that is instilled. As 1 John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's saying this is what we're passing on. This life was made manifest and we saw it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. When we tell you about Christ, we're telling you about his life and we're conveying that life to you. We saw it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That's which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you may have fellowship with us. How do you have unity? How do you have fellowship? Through Christ. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son Christ. So John is saying we identify Christ's presence, his life as we saw it, and in doing so, we identify his eternal life with us, God with us. His ongoing presence is made known to you. On this basis, we have fellowship with one another and our fellowship with God, with the Father and the Son. John says the same thing, and I'll just close with this. This is at the end of John, the Gospel. These things that are written are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Step one, who is Jesus? And the identity of Christ is there in the Gospel. That you may believe that he's the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Identify Christ, and you identify his presence, and you have life in him. Jesus himself is given to us in the gospel and his presence in our life that becomes our mindset that becomes our ethic that becomes our peace. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.